Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up This is the Church Politics Podcast Where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview We're not trying to be conservative or progressive We're trying to be Christian in the public square and I'm black as heaven I'm made in God's image Nobody can change my settings Amen. Hey man, cut off my knees And put an end to my search It's easy to sell your soul When you don't know what it's worth What you know good, Ann Camp You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast With Justin Gibney, A.K.A. Bishop Cooper's grandson And the Windy City representative The baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line My play cousin The right reverend Christopher Butler. Well, Chris, has it warmed up in Chicago is is my first question. No, it was 28 degrees last night. Whoa. Okay. So I was just in D.C. because it's pretty warm here in Atlanta. You know, we're in the 70s, you know, high 60s. Went to D.C. and it was freezing and I was not prepared. But it sounds like y'all got pump fake because what I, from what I understand, it, it heated up a little bit. And then went back to being cold. That's been the rhythm. Like uh, I, I saw this this great meme uh, that was given a new rhythm for Chicago seasons. And so you first get the spring of deception. You get regular spring. The spring of deception. Okay. Uh, ho- hey, you know it's only a matter of time, man. And it needs to be before, what is that? I'll be there in like May 5th and 6th. So I needed to warm up before then. I'm going to the installation of our good friend, Dr. Charlie Dates. But I, I need warmth, man. I ain't trying to go up there with a coat on. So I'm I'm asking the Lord, not for me, but for your sake, and so that Charlie can have the sunny day that he deserves for his installation, that we do get a change in the weather. All right. You hear that, Chicago? Warm up immediately. Again, I'm just going to remind everybody, Chris, that we do have our docu-series, How I Got Over, on the website. So you can just go to ancampaign.org and you can check out the docu-series about the role that the authority of Scripture played in the black church, from its establishment to its music to its politics and so on. Excellent documentary docu-series. Go check that out immediately. As always, uh, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also, shout out to those folks who support us on patreon.com slash church politics. We appreciate you. We got a premium episode coming on after this about Biden's reelect and how that's getting started and what we think the you know emphasis will be and all that stuff and how effective it'll be. So you know what it is, folks. Grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Well, Chris, words are powerful and definitions matter. Words can be used to inspire, to galvanize, and to encourage the people, or they can be misused and purposefully ill-defined. Words can be used to misdirect us. The substance of and context behind certain words can mislead us. One word can mean different things or can have different implications based on the intent of the speaker. That's why we don't follow words. They can be an empty shell filled with various content. We follow, Christians, the word. We follow the substance of Jesus, not just words people have associated with him. If you haven't already, you need to read George Orwell's essay entitled Politics and the English Language. We talk about it in our book, Compassion and Conviction, but it, it gets to some of the points that I just mentioned. Chris, compassion is a word we often hear associated with Jesus. 
in the gospel, his works and overall disposition are often characterized as compassionate. And I was just reading through Matthew and we see several instances where compassion is mentioned in reference to Jesus. Matthew 9, 36, Matthew 14, 14. Jesus saw the large crowd and had compassion for them. This is defined as a deep empathy, uh, a tenderness. It's often coupled with healing or the providing of sustenance. It's not just an emotion, but often tied to his actions. We know, anybody that reads the Bible knows, I would hope, that compassion is very important and you can't be a Christian, a faithful Christian, and not have compassion. But it's also a word that can be misconceived and distorted. A bad conception of compassion is just as dangerous as a heart filled with violence. And I stand by that. I'll explain it. We'll kind of give an instance of that a little later. I believe, Chris, that a distorted understanding of compassion has misled a lot of Christians today in culture and in their politics, especially those of us who lean left ideologically. We've kept the word. We've kept the word compassion that's so often connected with Jesus, but we've lost or swapped out the substance. Compassion now seems to be just sentimentality. It's falsely emotional. It lacks boundaries and a moral anchor. Nothing has to be biblical today as long as it's compassionate based on the world's definition. Compassion, as far as I can tell, is now synonymous with affirmation. And we see this in different policies in different places and how we address certain serious issues. When it comes to those struggling with drug addiction, a distorted conception of compassion is hurting the users, but not only the users, the surrounding community. This school of thought says that you don't want to compel a homeless drug user to get help. That would be mean. That would be going against their will. No, you just give them fresh needles and let them lay in the streets, sometimes even in their own feces, and drug themselves to death in peace. That's compassion, according to parts of the Pacific Northwest, according to progressives and the Christians who follow their every whim and word. Now, to be fair with the drug policy, I, will, I do have to say that this is a response to the over-criminalization of drug users who should not, in my opinion, be treated like the sellers. And so it's trying to correct the idea that we just throw drug users in jail, but I think it's an overcorrection. All right. Now, San Francisco recorded 200 accidental overdose deaths from January to March of this year, according to data from the medical examiner's office. This represents a 40 percent, 40 percent increase from the same period last year. An analysis conducted by the San Francisco Chronicle shows that 52 of those deaths involved fentanyl. All right. Uh, According to the L.A. Times, Because of all that's going on, because of these increases, Governor Gavin Newsom is calling on the California National Guard and the California Highway Patrol to help San Francisco police and prosecutors fight fentanyl, fight this crisis facing the city. This new initiative is meant to target traffickers, dismantle the supply of fentanyl into the city and address drug related crime. The governor's office announced all this Friday. Now, the announcement was light on details, Chris, but hopefully it'll be shutting down the open drug markets in San Francisco 
where buyers and sellers can openly exchange money and heroin, crack, fentanyl, and it goes on. So these were just open spaces where they're allowing people to sell and buy drugs. And as I said before, just basically kill themselves using drugs without kind of pushing them to get some help. Chris, what, what are your thoughts on the governor's announcement and just the overall policy that we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest in general? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly hope that, you know, as you said, the, the, the press release was very light on detail. Certainly hope that this is going to be something that actually starts to get after what I would still argue are some very foundational elements of the of this this drug epidemic some sometimes we talk about quote unquote root causes and today that means things like mental health and things like that which i I also think that we need to be in, investing in but I would also argue that drug trafficking is a pretty root cause of drug use because the the more supply is there the more likely and the easier it is for somebody to use it so I think that Going after drug trafficking is a, I think it's a root cause strategy, uh, but you know we'll have that debate. I do hope that there's some lessons learned from previous war on drugs kind of strategies. I'm specifically thinking about the crack epidemic because you, you don't want to go in and start criminalizing people who are struggling with addiction. And it, it, there's a sense in which you may not, in my opinion, want to be hyper-focused on the kind of low-level subsistence-based drug dealer, right? Again, I think that that type of person still needs to be accountable for their actions. But you do want to, you know, if, if you're using these resources to really go after higher-level facilitators of, of, uh, of drug trafficking, then I think that this is something that could be very helpful. I, I think that you have to take a multifaceted approach to dealing with this. I also was a little bit disappointed, and this is not just in, in Gavin Newsom's case in California, I think across the board in the Pacific Northwest and, and really across the country when it comes to drug policy, there's still not, I think, a high enough emphasis placed on the kind of programs and scaling the capacity of the kind of programs that can actually lead people to healing and wholeness and recovery. I don't know. I feel like I've discussed it before on this podcast, but my dad spent a long, I mean, I would say probably, if not the majority, a a big portion of his life addicted to heroin. And it was was a, a Christian ministry called Teen Challenge that actually helped him find freedom from that addiction. And so there are programs like Teen Challenge, Celebrate Recovery, even NA and things like that, that do have pretty decent outcomes when it comes to uh, helping people actually find freedom. Holiness, when we were at the, the Heirs of Action event, I got a chance to talk a lot to Pastor Lisa Saunders, who's in, in Portland, Oregon, and doing this type of work. Uh, and when those types of programs and ministries exist and are not included in the conversation at scale, I think is a, a real missed opportunity for anybody that is trying to do this. Because you want to see that increased improve, sort of enforcement. That's, that law enforcement piece uh, is a big piece of this. I also look at, you know, Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill back in August that would have piloted some of these safe injection centers. 
and his view on on the veto was that it was too expensive, it was too big, but maybe you know some kind of scaled down approach to piling that and putting putting programs together. I would I would just really hope that this is not like a less thoughtful attempt to score like political points for somebody who might want to run for president and really a, a much more thoughtful attempt to really bring down the number of people who are dying in the streets in San Francisco. That's good, Chris. I, I want you to, if you can, if you don't mind, I want you to speak into my my kind of thesis or thoughts on the misplaced or ill-defined compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I think that it is... It's unfortunate because it turns this real serious conversation into more of a rhetorical and political football. And so you use the word compassion to really veil what I think is a little bit more sinister idea, which is is this idea of kind of like affirmation and permissiveness that everybody gets to do whatever they want to do, even if it is a harm to themselves. And maybe it's an old fashioned notion, but I don't think that it's healthy for us as a society to assent mentally to the idea that you can, we'll just let you destroy yourself if that's what you choose to do, because we're going to call it freedom, autonomy, and compassion. Because it's, it's really not that, especially not those who would frame it as as Christian compassion, because that's certainly not what we see Christ do in the scriptures. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good. I mean, we always have to remember, you know, in the hand campaign talks about this ad nauseum, compassion has to be coupled with truth. Once you have a sense of compassion that is detached from the truth, it's no longer compassionate. And usually what it is, is very short-sighted. And we've talked about this even with the gender identity thing, right? If somebody's, you know, how they feel doesn't match their biology, doesn't match their body, then the compassionate thing to do is just to go along with them. And I still, you know, I have, you know, I have people that I know that are, that are, you know, kind of leaning towards that way. And I I still don't understand how that's helping somebody in the long term, how that's helping them spiritually to say, yeah. Truthfully, in your body, what your body's saying, this is not who you are, but I'm going to go along with this to make you feel better right now. And we know that it hasn't brought the suicide rate down, hasn't done any of those things, but it's a short sighted. And I, I often I, I would also say that it's a it's a type of compassion that lacks moral imagination that can only see what's in the moment and how somebody might say something makes them feel in the moment, but does not see what glorifies God and what gets somebody to a point where they can, you know, actually deal with the truth and handle who they are and handle the brokenness that we all have in us. So I, I do think that's a lack of moral imagination and a lack of compassion. One other thing that I wanted to point out, though, Chris, is a quote from uh, Gavin Newsom in one of the articles that I was reading about this, his new his announcement. He says this, he said, two truths can coexist at the same time. San Francisco's violent crime rate is below comparably sized cities like Jacksonville and Fort Worth Note that both those cities are in red states. And there is also more we can do to address public safety concerns, especially with this crisis. This is my problem with Gavin Newsom. Instead of just addressing a very serious problem that everybody in the world can see who's looking can see is a terrible problem. You've got to pull politics and ideology and tribalism into this. There's no and he might he might have his statistics right. I haven't looked at the stats, but there's no data and statistics that are more played with than crime data and statistics. So the fact that he can point to two other cities that happen to be in red states and say they have a worse crime rate, that does nothing for me. When you're looking how people are suffering in those areas and yet 
when you address something in your state as you travel all around the country doing you know running for president or whatever you're doing you need to bring up other cities i guess to make your situation look better i don't know chris I- I- any thoughts on that yeah i mean i i think and i, I said it previously I, I i would hope that this is not just a quick thing for a politically ambitious individual but I, I think that it all sort of roots in with, with being too philosophical here. I, I think as, as long as you have this ability to ignore kind of like some immutable truths associated with the embodiment of human beings, right? Because you get to say our violent crime rate is down if you don't have to include the violence that people are committing against themselves by injecting themselves with fentanyl. But I think that the that there's like this part of me why I don't think that we can just allow people to destroy themselves because that's their decision is because there, there is a mutable truth that is encoded in our embodied self as human beings, right? Like our actual embodied existence carries with it some immutable truth. It, it goes into what you mentioned. If folks are thinking like, well, what's the connection between like the gender identity thing? That also goes to this idea that there's just some immutable truth like rooted in your embodied self. You do have a body. You did not put yourself in it. And there is some, some truth associated with that. And if, if you say that violent crime is down because you don't include the violence that folks are committing against themselves and the fact that people are literally dying on the street, it's like you said, it's playing with numbers. Because talk to somebody who lives in San Francisco, a dead guy on the street is a pretty bad experience, whether he got stabbed or shot or if he overdosed on fentanyl. And the subject matter wasn't violent crime. I thought we were talking about drug use. I thought we were talking about um, deaths from overdoses. Why are we talking about violent crime when you're talking about overdoses? But again, for people who want to believe, for progressives, even some progressive Christians who want to believe the right gets everything wrong, that's all they have to hear. And they dismiss, you know, they'll give him a pass because he pointed out that, oh, but they're worse. So don't worry about what we're doing. No, man, you took it all out of context just to point over to somebody else instead of dealing with the problems that you have in one of the cities where, to be honest, poor people can't even live there unless they're living on the street. So that's another issue that we can talk about. But, that's a whole other thing, right? Right. That's a whole another thing that we can talk about. But it's it's just predictable. I mean, we could anticipate mm-hmm. it that some comment about the right would enter into this, even though the right has no say, no influence, no leverage whatsoever in California. Somehow they got to play into the narrative of what's going on. Here, here's another quote that we got that is interesting, too. So this is a response. Someone says this latest publicity stunt. Uh, will not meaningfully improve conditions in the neighborhood. This is San Francisco supervisor Dean Preston, whose district includes the Tenderloin, one of the most overdose plague parts of the city. It is a transparent effort to appease national conservative media by declaring war on a diverse, low-income urban neighborhood, exploiting the struggles of the Tenderloin rather than investing in the community. So you're telling me that Gavin Newsom needs to do something to please the national conservative media. So he did this. He did this so Fox News would fall in love with him. And it may be, I mean, he may be right. Like, as you said, this could be a publicity stunt. But what does this have to do with national conservatives? Your average everyday American would say you shouldn't just have open air drug spots where people can buy and sell drugs and then just sit there and use drugs in the middle of the street. That has nothing to do with conservatives. But instead of dealing with the issues, and admitting that this ridiculous, progressive way of dealing with some of these issues just isn't working, 
some way, somehow, you got to bring the other side into it. I think that's a perfect point. That, and I think it's like the district attorney, Raju Dana, who came out with these kind of criticisms. My immediate thought was something I, I mentioned before a serious policy mind who does take this perspective of like more treatment might have said to the governor, probably not through the press, but through, you know, in a private conversation, hey, you vetoed this bill that we supported back in August because you said it was too expensive to pilot these safe injection sites. Maybe since we're going to send in the National Guard, and that's a good thing because we need to get the crime that is actually associated with this under control, maybe we can do a smaller pilot just inside of this enforcement area where the National Guard is going to be working. Let's do a smaller pilot and see where that goes. Like Those are the conversations. Uh, and it, I, I feel like I, I came into this, Justin, right at the tail end. But I think about you know when I was 18, 19 years old, like, I feel like those are the kinds of conversations that serious policy people used to have, even people who had different uh, sort of viewpoints about how to deal with certain issues. And, and now you very rarely see that kind of stuff happening. It's just a kind of rhetorical tribal back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, we know it's bad, but it's better than those conservative places. Yeah, we know we you know, you're just doing this to please the conservatives in California. That is, you know, kind of like a, a microcosm of what's going on in American politics. Well, let me end by saying this, Chris. People are suffering because of, of these decisions. I don't know that anybody has an answer perfectly, so I don't want to just say that it would be perfect if conservatives were over it. I, I don't believe that would be the case either. But I do know we need to pray for the families and the people who are in the midst of this. Really, I mean, it, it just sounds awful. It's a really bad situation. It's not just in San Francisco. It's all around. It's in all of our families. A lot of people are being impacted. So let's pray for the leadership. Let's pray for the people who are suffering through this, that we push the politics and the tribalism to the side and actually try to get to some real results, that people wouldn't use these things for selfish ambition, wouldn't use them for, for future positions, but would really be thinking about the people and what the people need in this moment. So let's all pray for that. Uh, we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, the New York Post is reporting that Joe Biden's presidential campaign prompted former acting CIA director Mark Morrell 
to quote unquote help Biden by organizing 50 colleagues to sign a letter in October 2020 falsely claiming that damning emails from Hunter Biden's laptop published by the Post were Russian disinformation. In private sworn testimony, Morell told of the House Judiciary Committee that Antony Blinken, now the Secretary of State, was the senior uh, campaign official who reached out to him on or before October 17, 2020, three days after the Post published an email from the laptop suggesting uh, Hunter Biden had introduced his Ukraine business partner to his father, then Vice President Biden. Morell said he organized the letter to help the vice president because I wanted him to win the election. So many dynamics here, Chris. You have the media's role in this because honestly, this is the New York Post. A lot of other media sources aren't talking about this at all, right? They, I guess, I don't know if it doesn't seem important or whatever. You have the CIA involved in it, right? The CIA director. And then you have a State Department that still hasn't commented on this at all as of the moment that we are recording. And I'm one of those people who, when Trump talked about the deep state and how they were just coming after him and all that stuff, I kind of dismissed it. You know, this is Trump. Everybody's against him. He's always the victim. So on, you know, so on and so forth. But when you see something like this, when you have 50 trusted members of our information, you know, from the CIA and FBI and all that stuff, 50 trusted people from those spaces signing a letter falsely claiming that these emails were Russian disinformation. And then we find out that it was all set up and all organized by a campaign that they would hurt their, you know, that they would tarnish their integrity. You know, this guy was the acting you know, a CIA director. Maybe he was trying to maintain the job or get, you know, whatever else could have been going on. That is, I mean, when you talk about people and conspiracy theories and you talk about the mistrust of government, this is why. It's one thing for one guy to say, hey, it's in my interest to sign this letter. 50 of his colleagues in this space sign a letter that's false. And not one of them says, hey, man, you know, I like Biden, too. I can't sign that because I don't know this to be Russian disinformation. And then the media dismisses it and and stops talking about it completely, goes along with the narrative without any further investigation. Did this have a, you know, a role in the election? I don't you know, I don't know how great of a role it had, but. What I do know is it speaks to the integrity of a, of a lot of people in a lot of different positions. And it's part of the problem that we have with information and how we understand the facts in general, what we believe to be true. This is epistemology. This is a big problem in that space. So, Chris, go ahead. Uh, let me know what you think about Blinken and this spy letter. Yeah, we try to provide like, you know, perspective on different points. But this is. First off, I want I think we should put into context for Church Politics podcast listeners. To this moment, like Justin said, while we're recording, New York Post reported it. Secretary of State Antony Blinken hasn't responded. The State Department hasn't responded. And I, I think what you usually find is that if a an outlet like the New York Post, because even though other mainstream media outlets are ignoring this story, if it were patently false, somebody would have come out very quickly and said, yo, that's not true. And here's the evidence that that's not true. So the fact that it's been reported, it's been out there for a couple of days and nobody's come out and said, that's not true. 
leads me to believe that there's a lot of truth to what has been reported with this narrative. And that is the part that's legitimately scary to me. Because this is sworn testimony, right? Like, this isn't just him talking to a friend and he got caught. He's giving sworn testimony to the Judiciary Committee. No, this is, this is sworn testimony, naming the Secretary of State of the United States, right? I think people know that's not like a small job. But it's legit scary to me that most of the mainstream media outlets are comfortable sweeping this kind of report under the rug and that the president of the United States and the secretary of state of the United States are comfortable just not even addressing something that to me is a significant accusation because you're talking about a very key member of the national security community in the United States essentially organized a PSYOP with the express purpose of deceiving voters in the United States in the waning days of an election for president of the United States. That's a serious, serious problem. And even though, you know, I don't think I could make the argument that the Hunter Biden laptop decided the 2020 election one way or the other, this accusation does suggest that there is a person who has stronger commitments to a certain agenda or a certain set of individuals or a certain ideology than he does to the people and the Constitution of the United States in the office of Secretary of State of the United States. And to me, that is a big, big problem because the folks who serve in those types of positions within the government are supposed to prize the good of the people of the United States and the sanctity of the Constitution of the United States above everything else, above their own uh, sort of personal affiliations and relationships, certainly above their own sort of political ideologies and agendas. And so while this is not about like whether the election was impacted, I, I think it's a, it's a big thing to consider to say that the person who is the Secretary of, of State is somebody who prizes certain individual relationships, certain political ideologies above the sanctity of the Constitution of the United States, the integrity of elections and that type of thing. That is a serious thing and is legitimately scary to me to, to think that the whole kind of like establishment, the president, the press secretary, the, the State Department and the media are all willing to like just not even explore this at all. And they, they purposefully went to people we would trust, that we're supposed to trust. And those people that we trust, 50 of them, lied in a context that was extremely consequential. Again, we're not saying that it changed the, the election, but it, it was in reference to an election that matters. And then when you look at just the whole use of Russian disinformation and how a lot of news sources jumped on this Russian disinformation and wrote it as far as it could possibly go. I mean, talked about it day in and day out, only to find out that a lot of it was just made up false made up by one campaign or another. I mean, think about how much time was spent on that. But not only that, how much it fueled an animus toward Russia. Now, that's not this is not to say that Russia is innocent of all, all things, but how much animus was fueled toward Russia through all this stuff. Now, wait, they might deserve some, they might not deserve some, but some of this definitely came based on things they didn't even do. So when you're supporting Ukraine in a war against Russia, all this stuff plays together, right? Like, so this is not to say that, you know, Ukraine shouldn't, isn't in the right or any of that, that or, or Russia is, everything they do is right. That's not the point. The point is people in high positions lied and the implications of that 
are pretty far reaching and are far reaching in a lot of different directions when you think about how we're painting certain people and how we're painting certain circumstances. You know, what won't they lie about? And again, this empowers to me, this empowers somebody like Trump who's going to tell you straight up they're lying to you. They're lying. You know, everybody only likes Trump because he's he's racist. Well, some people probably do, but some people just can't stand the establishment anymore. And they're tired of being lied to. And they know, you know, they know Trump lies, too. But at least he's willing to call it out. At least he's willing to say, hey, you know, I lied, too. But these folks are acting like they're something that they're not. Does that justify a vote for Trump? I don't think so. But guess what? You empower that point of view when stuff like this continues to happen over and over again. Because what another group might be saying is, you know what? Let that bull back into the the China shop to destroy all this establishment crap that we've been going through for so long. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're saying exactly right. Some somebody's going to look at this and say, well, it's not going to bring down Anthony Blinken, this story or Joe Biden. But the long term impacts are troubling to me. It's it's always it's the the what are, the little foxes, right? That that spoil the vineyard. And I, I think it would be much better long term for the country if Blinken and Biden just addressed this head on, you know, take whatever consequence might proceed from it and, and and let the country move forward because the other piece is that you can't bottle this type of stuff up. You, you you're going to have an election against probably against Donald Trump. He's not going to be quiet about it. There's this whole network of online media where the conversation is going to happen, whether you participate in it or not. And I just think it would be much better if they just address it. I mean, and then it brings up the question again, what meeting was there between Biden and some of these other folks? It has to be answered. So I hope Christians out there aren't just worried about party or the election are actually worried about what the truth is. Now you said something about foxes, <laughs> little foxes in the vineyard. Yeah, I've never heard that. Before. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's in, it's in the Song of Solomon, and and Solomon says to uh, capture the the little foxes, the foxes that destroy the vineyard. Uh, it, it literally is talking about this kind of thing, the sort of small infractions that ultimately add up to destroy. In that context, a marriage relationship, but I think it it applies broadly to. It's almost everything. Like it's very rarely that stuff falls apart because of one big cataclysm. Uh, it's you know, death by a thousand cuts. Mm. I might have to go back and read that one, man. I don't, I don't, I don't recall that one, but that's that's good, man. I might have to use it sometime. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. <laughs> Well, some of the biggest news of this week, Chris, was that Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon were fired. Tucker Carlson was obviously working at Fox News. I think he had the best. He might have had the best ratings out of anybody anywhere. And then you had Don Lemon, who was with CNN. I don't think his uh, ratings were that great, but still a very big name that a lot of people knew. And it's interesting to see those folks go, you know, one after the other. So a lot of people are asking her, why? Why was Tucker Carlson fired? Some people thought it was definitely about the suit. Uh, you know, I think it's what they have to pay seven hundred and eighty seven million dollars uh, in a lawsuit in the Dominion Fox News Dominion lawsuit about basically the 
lies that they told about the voting systems and the big lie with Trump not winning the election. Some folks at Fox News went way too far and kind of coming at Dominion and how their systems could be manipulated and, and, and used in all different kind of ways. When you go that far and you affect somebody's business, guess what, guys? That's illegal. Fox News found out that you can be held. I shouldn't say it's illegal, but you will be held liable for that. They're seeing what that means. But the truth of the matter is, Chris, Tucker Carlson wasn't in, even in the middle of that. He wasn't one of the main people that actually was coming at Dominion in that way, although he did have texts that came out during that process that were talking about you know, his bosses and, and saying all kind of different stuff. Uh, and that might have actually had something to do with it. But I also read something that said, you know, most like the most likely theory is one that lays the blame squarely on Carlson's shoulders because he had accusations of rampant misogyny in the workplace that finally caught up to him. Uh, apparently, uh, Abby Grossberg or Grossberg, who formerly worked on Carlson's show, sued Fox News, alleging that uh, Carlson and his producer, Justin Wells, had displayed rampant misogyny and anti-Semitism in the workplace. And some people are saying them getting hit with this Dominion suit on top of the suit that she already had and what he was saying about people high up in Fox News is actually what got him tossed out. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of Tucker Carlson. One of the main reasons is because, you know, all the vitriol and terrible things that he says, but also because I think he knows better. If you look at how Tucker Carlson, who he was before he kind of blew up on Fox News, I'm not saying I ever really disagree with him, but he was a lot more sensible. Even in his text messages, you can see that he was saying things that he didn't necessarily believe, but it was good for ratings. And so Tucker Carlson, I don't, I don't, you know, before anybody has a party and you think he's going to be in the bread line, he's going to be all right. He has a huge audience, especially in this day and age. He can do something independent. He can go, you know, a, a, a bunch of other different places. He's not going too far. I, I saw AOC and other people's really other people celebrating uh, him getting uh, deplatformed, but he'll be around. But but I do think that's one of the things that's been disappointing about about him. And then you have Don Lemon. Don Lemon had been at CNN for forever and really had gotten away with a lot of things that I don't think a lot of other people would have gotten away with. What I think eventually caught up with him is some misogyny once again, some uh, things he had said to his co-hosts, some letters he had written, just the way that he treated people. He just seemed like he was completely out of control based on uh, the information that's come out recently. But again, these are two big names. This does change the landscape of, of cable news to some extent. But I think both in both these instances, the demise of cable news is coming. And uh, this may hasten it. It may not. It's inevitable at this point because of the things that we've already been talking about on this episode. One of the, the biggest reflection for me as this news was breaking on Monday and then being further explored on Tuesday, I realized that. I have not been a consumer of cable news for a long time. It was huge news, and I understand, you know, I'm not completely removed from the world. I understand why it was huge news. But, like, I was really like, I don't care. <laughs> like, you know, like, I, I don't watch Fox. I don't watch CNN. I don't care about, like, the sort of competition for whatever audience is still there for cable news. Like, it just, I'm like, it, it doesn't impact me that much at all. I just think that there are more and more people in the world who fall into that category where even some of the the news worthiness of the stories is sort of perpetuated by the fact that it's news about the people who create the news. And if you if you really 
like if, if somebody who impacts people in a, at a similar scale, but over a different platform, like if something happened with them, would it be as much news hoopla about it? Right. Like I, I, um, and it's, it's not hard to find somebody with a YouTube channel that gets the size of audience that Don Lemon pulls in, you know, certainly. And even Tucker Carlson. And I agree that Tucker's going to be okay. Like if, if you actually follow, because some people have been introduced to Tucker Carlson on Fox News, uh, Tucker is actually an individual who has already reinvented himself, what, three times in fairly major ways. I think that dude's going to be fine because he'll figure it out. You know, I, I I just you know it's it's news because it was in the news, but I'm like, give it like a week, and people are gonna realize they're fine. We'll be over it. And here's the thing: like both of them are really good examples of what's wrong with cable news in general. I mean, if you just look at how Don Lemon was doing interviews as of late, you'd be like, bro, what are you doing? Are you trying to be a journalist? Are you trying? <laughs> what is going on here? Because this this benefits nobody. Like the way that you're conducting yourself, the way you're doing interviews benefits nobody because you're not getting to the core of issues. He's also a person who took the uh, Jesse Smollett stuff and and ran with it, and actually gave him the head up that that people didn't believe him. I mean, so my brother and I, we have a thing that that we do. This is probably my only engagement with cable news. Is that like if you go to the cable news networks websites half the stories on the homepage are actually about something that their anchor said on air so it's like they're like their news organization that's covering themselves and what their anchors are saying it's like this is such a joke and i think that's tucker that's that's don lemon like they're trying to make headlines in their own media sort of echo chamber and we know and i do know that we do have some boomers who listen to uh the church politics podcast and boomers tend to still watch cable news just stop i'll tell you that when i have conversations with people who watch cable news they all say the same thing and it's all usually very limited <laughs> in what's being said because it's all coming from the talking points of cable news which only talks about certain news, certain types of news. And we talked about that earlier, uh, you know, earlier on this episode. So there's a better way to have media hygiene. You may not be forced to stop watching now, but eventually you need to, you'll need to go to other sources because whether the way that they survive and they talk about this all the time on uh, um, breaking points, they survive because if you go into no, number one, they get the deals with the cable companies, right? You go into the airport, they're playing CNN or they're playing Fox News. That's how they survive. So even if they're not giving you the news, even if they're not doing a good job, they're still going to be around because of that. But my understanding is that all that stuff has to be renegotiated in in, in due time. And so the next time they come, they're not going to be able to have the leverage to be in those same spaces. And at that point, uh, cable news is in big trouble, but there's so many other better sources. You guys have already caught on to catch watching, uh, listening to the church politics podcast. There are other places to go as well. Check those out, man, because you're not getting good news. You're not at all. You're being fed propaganda. And, uh, I've, I've tried to share it with the boomers. Uh, let me not say the boomers with the, with the people, the individuals in my life who rely heavily on cable news. I've literally been inside of campaigns where people are sending, like you see the the talking points and then you watch the news at night and they're literally saying like, 
they they don't even like contextualize it or like paraphrase. Like they will literally say the very thing that the talking points had. It, it is such a joke. Just stop. Just stop. And to be clear, we are not anti-boomer. Our parents are boomers. We love the boomers, but we do know that the boomers still watch cable news and it ain't helping nobody. Certainly not helping the public discourse. Turn that off. Turn the view off yeah. and listen to more church politics podcasts. Anything else, though, Chris? No, I think that's a good place to leave it. All right. You guys know what it is, man. We, we try to have a little fun on here. Thank you for joining us again. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics. We'll be talking about the Biden reelection campaign on there and our premium episode. So if you want to hear that, go check it out. And then if you just want to support, you can go to the website and support us monthly. But we need you. You got to be part of the movement. And as always, Ann Kemp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, I'll let you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.